Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of December 25th, 2017. Hey. I think it's Christmas. I hear the tinkling of the bells. Uh, on this week's show, I'm going to go to a movie and eat some Chinese food. But Stefan will be here. Mm-hmm. He'll be carrying carrying me. Um, we'll also be joined by Ben Strauss for a conversation about why self-styled, elite, academically rigorous universities like Wesleyan are betting big on football and how those schools are changing as a consequence. We'll also speak with Rick Tellender. He's now of the Chicago Sun-Times. He is always the author of the basketball classic, Heaven is a Playground, and we'll speak to him about the life and legacy of New York hoops legend, Connie Hawkins, who died earlier this year at the age of 75. And finally, if all goes well, we will have some holiday goodies for you all. In your stockings. Hang them up. Hang them up, baby. Uh, But first, it's Stefan Fatsis. He's here in Washington, D.C. with me, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Both excellent stocking stuffers. I don't know if you could fit them into a stocking. stocking. Yeah. Yeah. But there are big stockings. Hi, Stefan. Hi, Josh. Can we talk about how uh, Francis Ford Coppola is reading Wild and Outside? Oh, we could do that. (laughs) (laughs) There was a thing in the Times Magazine, right? The Sunday Times Book Review, yes. The Sunday Times Book Review, where the great acclaimed director is asked what's on his nightstand. And for some reason... He's reading Stefan's out-of-print book, 
about uh, the independent minor league baseball scene, yeah. wild and outside. Yeah, he is. It was the first sentence in the interview, actually. And, and it took like five seconds of Googling to figure out why Francis Ford Coppola might be reading a book that I wrote, you know, 20 plus years ago about a small independent baseball league in the Midwest that sold about 2,000 copies. And the reason is that his winery in Sonoma <laughs> I love it. I love it already. is a sponsor of the Sonoma Stompers, which is the team that Sam Miller and Ben Lindbergh chronicled in their much better book about minor league baseball. The only rule is it has to work. And the winery had been a big supporter of of the team signing those two women pitchers last year in yeah. 2016. And who knows? It still doesn't quite explain it, but it... Maybe he's doing <laughs> a movie. Maybe they're doing a movie. I don't yeah, know. who knows? Maybe he but just likes independent minor league baseball and is scooping up everything was, he can. Regardless, it was a fun thing to see in the New York Times book review. And my initial reaction was this is like literary mad libs. <laughs> like Francis Ford Coppola and Wild and Outside. Yeah, it Indeed. Made no sense. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. Uh, way back in 1939, the University of Chicago famously washed its hands of football with the school president explaining that the whole apparatus of football, fraternities, and fun, the three Fs, is a means by which education is made palatable to those who have no business in it. Fast forward a little more than seven decades and UChicago has decided that the business of football is now a business it wants to be in. And it's one of a number of schools. Uh, there are 12 in the academically rigorous non-scholarship Division Three of the NCAA to have added football teams in the last nine years. Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, never killed its football program, but the school, which takes pride in its iconoclasm and its independence, never really took the sport seriously. That's changed in recent years with Wesleyan investing more and recruiting more heavily in a bid to become a small-scale football power. Ben Strauss is the co-author with Joe Nacera of Indentured, the inside story of the rebellion against the NCAA. He spent time at Wesleyan for a piece we published in Slate last week. That story headlined The Liberal Arts Football Factory. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Ben Strauss. Happy to be back. Uh, I didn't mention in the intro, but Swarthmore did drop its football program in the last few years, right? Yes. Um, but that is definitely the exception. It is fair to say that the trend among these schools is to add football programs. And there are two things that I want to get into in this segment. The first is why. Why would schools like Wesleyan, like UChicago, um, really invest in football at this particular time in human history? The other one is what is the consequence on these campuses when that decision is made? But let's get into the why first, sort of in a macro sense, what is in it for a school like Wesleyan um, when it comes to trying to be better at football, investing more in football, recruiting more to have a good football team? Yeah, there are, there are a couple of reasons um, why football and, and athletics writ large uh, matter or, or, you know, why they would do this. Um, one is 
there's a sense of school spirit. Um, you do get more people going to the games when the teams are better. Um, you do get sort of a, a sense of camaraderie, community among at least some on campus. Um, and you don't have the kind of like negative vibes of your team like losing 50 to nothing yeah. every week. <laughs> exactly. The, the AD at Wesleyan sort of made a, a point, and, and I think that in today's world, um, it's probably more valid than it was in 1975 when, you know, you see uh, on Saturday afternoon your football team, you know, in an empty stadium getting beat 35 nothing by, you know, the team down the road. It sort of reflects poorly on the institution um, in a way, you know, in a sports-crazed world today, um, it, it might not have, you know, in, in previous years. Um, so I think there's sort of these psycho-civic benefits um, that you talk about. And then there's, there's sort of a financial uh, benefit, too. Uh, number one, athletes tend to donate money back to their schools after they leave. And you get a higher rate of alums, you know, in the moment giving uh, to the school. Uh, and so the, the financial uh, windfall, I guess, and this is what they talked about at Wesleyan, is real, um, which was sort of shocking to me at a place like Wesleyan. Which is small. I mean, the student body is what? A couple thousand? 3,000. 3,000. And yet there is that sense of connectivity that people talk about. And I guess it's real. But the question to me has always been, like, when you put it on the scales, is it is the money worth it? You know, at what point does football money become blood money for a school <laughs> like Westland? Um, and the answer in, in, in your piece, you talked to the president of the university who said, I feel like we should try to excel at everything we do as a university. And this is a common, common refrain among university administrators who justify or try to justify spending on athletics. And the, the, the question that's always been foremost in my mind is like, where's the strength? Who's going to be the university administrator who, like Hutchings in 1939 at Chicago, says that we don't think football is compatible with the moral character and purpose of our university. And clearly it's not Wesleyan. Clearly it's not Wesleyan. And and you've just seen, you can see around the country at Division Three and other places how hard it is to sort of push back against, you know, football machinery. Look at UAB a couple of years ago. You know, this is a school um, that was Division One, but, you know, they had a terrible football team. Nobody cared about it at all. And the president said, you know, this isn't something we're going to do. And the entire this city. This is Alabama, Birmingham. Alabama, Alabama Birmingham, Birmingham, right. And, and the entire city revolted. Uh, and this was this was not a football power or a team that people particularly cared about. It is in Alabama, though. Even no UAB, like you know, they drew a couple of thousand people. Like everybody's rooting for Alabama, Auburn. Nobody, uh, you know, gives particular attention to Alabama, Birmingham football, and and yet they couldn't push back against football. And so it's really, really hard. And and the president of Wesleyan, you ask where the line is. His his line seems to be. Uh, expenditures. Um, and, and it, you know, you look around the NESCAC, which is, you know, Wesley and Amherst Williams, and you see a lot of money being spent on athletic facilities, you know, $12 million for a football stadium, another, you know, 15. Uh, Colby, I believe, is spending $200 million on a, you know, a big athletics facility. And Wesleyan, you know, in uh, the president's, you know, 10 years there, uh, their biggest athletic expenditure is about uh, $3 million. And so to him, you know, if we can hold a line on, you know, spending a lot of money on palatial 
uh, facilities, then we're holding the line on, you know, whatever the institutional creep of athletics on everything else is. Yeah, but at some point, doesn't the stud D3 recruit come to Wesleyan and say, boy, your facilities suck. I'm going to Colby. That's the question. Or should we make a distinction between athletics and football? If there's a sound body, sound mind argument. Athletics are entrenched in American higher education. They're not going anywhere, nor should they. And one of the arguments that you make in the piece um, about the effects of athletics at academically elite institutions like Wesleyan is that it tends to be an affirmative action program for white male jocks whose whose academic records are lower and who, once they get to the university, don't perform as well as the student body writ large. Um, in looking at that, you know, the question you would ask is, well, so what? I mean, isn't that the way it's always been? Um, NESCAC has a system of uh, lowering its standards, basically, to admit athletes. The Ivy League does the exact same thing. It's got something called the Academic Index. Um, one of the arguments that the administrators make is that, well, this is another kind of diversity on campus. So athletic diversity and, I guess, sort of intellectually inferior diversity, too. Yeah, I, there is actually an important distinction probably between football and other sports in that football, more than swimming, rowing, tennis, does offer you know racial diversity, number one, and also brings in more students from more working class backgrounds, which is, um, you know, a form of diversity at a place like Wesleyan where most of the kids are, are pretty well off. Um, and so I, that is not an unimportant argument to be made. Um, I guess the question for university is, are there better ways to uh, educate minority students? Um, are there better ways to recruit minority students than to uh, you know, fall back on an athletic department to bring those kids to campus. Right. So you're relying on football and basketball to make your numbers look better in terms of minority admissions. And that was something that a couple of former uh, admissions folks and administrators at Wesleyan, you know, brought up to me that, you know, the athletic department brings in, you know, racially diverse students. And it means that, you know, the rest of uh, the admissions, the rest of recruiting can, you know, go a little bit easier because they are getting, you know, racial diversity through athletics. It's a little bit more complicated than that. And it's like, I think maybe easier when you read the story to understand how the different like levers get pulled. But the thing that's like so fascinating is that they have, as Stefan mentioned, this program, it's called TIPS, where um, somebody in the athletics department can quote unquote tip a student and say, you know, this guy's got an SAT score of a thousand, but he's really good at you know, lacrosse. So let's, you know, give him a leg up and give him one of our 60 or 70 slots in a class of like 750 students that are reserved for folks like this. But the way that it ends up working in practice is because the school is committed to having, you know, a certain you know, number of people or people of color in their classes. Um, those, um, those students aren't, um, you know, they don't use the tips. So what happens is, these um, you know special slots for academically inferior students go to white men predominantly. And the point that's made in the piece that I think is a really important one is one about opportunity costs. It's like, what, what else could you be doing with these slots if you weren't giving them to athletes in this way? If such a high percentage 
of the class at this really small school wasn't devoted to, you know, students who fit in this kind of tranche. You make an important point about the high percentage of the athletes who come in this way. And so at a school like Wesleyan, you have 3,000 kids on campus and, you know, close to 10% of the student body is on, is, is brought in through these, this TIP process. Um, and close to 25% of the kids on campus play varsity athletics. And so the idea that you, uh, the idea that, that athletics can distort a student body is actually, you know, much stronger at a place like Wesleyan, you know, versus, you know, Ohio State where, you know, sports is obviously a big deal. Um, you know, the fandom is a lot stronger. Uh, but there's 20,000 undergraduates. But uh, more, it's yeah. like, it's, yeah, you're talking about like, you know, close to 1,000 varsity jocks and, you know, 45,000 undergraduate students. It's like 2%. And so the the distortion factor of just the student body and, and you know, how sports fits into the roles of, of the students on campus, it's, it's much different at uh, a place like Wesleyan yeah. versus Ohio State. And it's actually... Amherst, which is also in the NESCAC, is looking at a you know even stronger, even larger distortion because they've got close to forty percent of you know eighteen hundred kids on campus are playing varsity sports. Stefan, I'm interested in what you think about this idea of you know there being quote unquote two Wesleyans um, because a place like Wesleyan and other you know similar universities really do talk up and pride themselves on um, you know the campus being this like really s- special place mm-hmm. where everyone comes together. And I had a hard time kind of deciding for myself whether this idea of, um, you know, the, the focus on athletics splitting the campus into whether, you know, isn't that always the case or, or might that always be the case? But it's incumbent on the university to deal with that, isn't it? It's, it's you know, do we segregate athletes? Do we create athlete dorms? Do they eat together? Um, and at bigger places like Alabama, yeah, that's far more prevalent. But again, it's an institutional choice. Or do you create conditions where the students self-segregate? Well, correct. But you can also, but there's only so much that the university can manage. But there's a lot they can manage. At Stanford, for instance, the athletes are integrated into the regular dorms of students. My protege Scrabble player who graduated <laughs> from high school here last year and is a freshman at Stanford. He's an athlete who gets integrated into the regular dorm. Is rooming, is rooming with the red shirt number one quarterback in the country at Stanford this year. Randomly, his roommate is the dude that is the top quarterback prospect in the country. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know how much you can sort of um, criticize Wesleyan for this particular issue. Um, I think it, it's probably a, a negative on campus. Um, and it, it probably feels like a bigger issue because it's such a small campus, 3,000 kids. But I think it's it's tough to say to a university, you know, you have to make the football player be friends with, the, you know, the kid in theater. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some, I think there's some natural self-selection there. Um, and as Roth you know, as President Roth said, you know, we want cohort building. He told me a story of a fellow president who, you know, woke up on a Saturday morning and saw that the baseball team was practicing. And he's thinking, why are they practicing? Um, you know, they should be doing other things on campus, you know, at eight o'clock on a Saturday morning. And then he thinks to himself, you know, there's a lot worse things that, you know, college kids could be doing at eight o'clock in the morning than practicing 
or the, the, than being at baseball practice. And so I, I do think that there's, you know, some sympathy or, you know, some a lack of blame to, to give to Wesleyan for this particular issue. Yeah, I don't have a huge, I mean, I think if, if you're, you don't want to argue that athletics are bad. I mean, everything is self-segregating. I hung out with the newspaper yeah. people when I was an undergraduate. Engineering students will hang out with the robotics club. I mean, it's, you know, you're going to create, they're going to be places where students find their home. Athletics is just one of them. I mean, I think the, the, the anomaly here is that in, and we haven't mentioned, you know, what, what we know about what football is doing to people's bodies and brains and how that factors in or doesn't into the decisions of smaller universities like Wesleyan who want to continue investing in the sport. And to me, that's where the, the debate should be held. What kinds of activities should we be actively promoting as core missions and core gathering points for our campus. Did the Wesleyan folks talk to you about um, football and brain injuries and how that fit into their calculus? Yeah, I asked uh, President Roth about that. Um, and he said, you know, we're following the research. You know, we're obviously aware of, um, you know, what's going on at Boston University and, and, and you know, everything with CTE and, and you know, health issues across the board um, and sort of said that it's something they're monitoring. And it, it's not, uh, obviously, it's not enough not to invest in football. And it's obviously not enough to, to think about. Yeah, we know. got our we got our eye on that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. So Swarthmore, that's, that's fascinating. Do you have a sense of whether they've paid any kind of price in the marketplace for the decision to drop football? Because that's really, they're an outlier. And, you know, I think Stefan brought it up right in the beginning of the segment. That's the thing that I don't understand either is these – so many of these schools are just, like, so high on their own supply about what special places they are. Um, some of them for good reason. Maybe maybe all of them for good reason. Who, who knows? But um, there's not really that much leadership here. I guess in the Ivy League, they're like, we're not going to hit each other in practice anymore. That's That's something. But, you know, do you have a sense about – Swarthmore and whether they've they've paid a price. I don't have a great sense. Um, actually, I sent numerous notes to Swarthmore to discuss this, um, but they they don't want to talk about it. They didn't want to talk about it. Um, and I do think I was pretty surprised about it, to be honest. But I do think that there one of the things that was that sort of really struck me about Wesleyan is that there are alums at Wesleyan who really care about football. And there's a group that, you know, I hung out with when I went to the game in the fall. And I mean, they love Wesleyan football. And if Wesleyan went ahead and said, we're going to get rid of football, there would be a backlash. There would be a huge outcry. You know, this is, this is something that's important to the university. It's important. Bill Belichick went there. How could they forsake their tradition? They're naming a foyer after him. Uh, And his, uh, his daughter. That's my goal in life too, to have a foyer (laughs) named after me. I'm looking for a foyer, but foyer, foyer would be nice too. Um, his daughter was the lacrosse. His daughter coach. was the lacrosse yeah. coach too. Um, yeah. And I do think there's something nice, right? The the foot the AD and former football coach Mike Whalen, you know, has talked about how when he came in, he brought Belichick back into the fold, you know, for fundraising. He speaks to the team. They trade emails. I think that's probably something that is um, it's good for the school. It's good, you know, to to have alumni connected. It's good to have somebody like Bill Belichick connected and engaged in his alma mater. Um, and so again, it's it's sort of like what is the trade-off, and it's also I think getting 
you know, the school getting Wesleyan to admit that there is some trade-off here, that there is right. some values judgment. And, and I think that that was um, something that they acknowledged. Um, but, but the idea that you can't just make this move and it, it doesn't ripple effect, you know, other yeah. places in the school, there, there is a value judgment. And, um, you know, when you do value athletics in admissions, you sort of change part of the mission of the university. Right. Swarthmore cut football, we should say, in 2000. So it's been 17 years. Um, I just Googled two seconds ago. And the last fee story I found from the Swarthmore uh, College paper was in 2012. And it's basically like a shoulder shrug from the administration. <laughs> yeah, maybe we didn't get, we're not getting as many donations, but maybe we are. So there's no real, it doesn't seem like it's crippling the college in any way. And ultimately, it's something that makes Swarthmore stand out. And there was a lot of controversy, apparently, about the way that the board at Swarthmore cut the, there cut was, the program. There was an outcry. And yeah. I guess we should talk about Wesleyan in a little bit of a larger context, too. Wesleyan considers itself, you know, a rival with Amherst and um, Williams, the little, Williams, the little three. Exactly. And, and you have Williams and Amherst who have, you know, endowments of $2 billion and Wesleyan is, is under a billion. And so that's a big deal to them. And so I think the athletics piece of this is, is about boosting the endowment and it's sort of a, a wider university strategy to fundraise and to, you know, boost that endowment. I think we solved it. I think we've, it's a tough issue, but we got to the bottom of it. Uh, ben Strauss is the co-author with Jonas Sarah of Indentured, the inside story of the rebellion against the NCAA. His piece on Slate about Wesleyan and football, it's headlined The Liberal Arts Football Factory. Thank you very much, Ben Strauss. My pleasure, guys. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Before we get to the late, great Connie Hawkins... I want to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Stefan and I are going to talk about some other sports figures who died this year, among them the women's basketball legend Mamie Peanut Johnson and the tennis player Yana Novotna. To hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. And if you do, you will get a bonus segment on this and other Slate podcasts, and you'll get it every single week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Also, we are still looking for an intern starting in January here in D.C. If uh, you're interested, uh, email us at hangup at slate.com, and we will discuss. In 499 games with the NBA's Suns, Lakers, and Hawks, Connie Hawkins averaged 16.5 points, 8 rebounds, and 4 assists per game. Very good numbers, but not transcendent. The Hawk did reach transcendence, though, in the ABA. He averaged 28 points and 13 rebounds per game for the Pittsburgh and Minnesota Pipers from 1967 to 1969. But Hawkins, who died in October at the age of 75, is best known for games that most people didn't see and for the scandal that truncated his career. Hawkins's New York Times obit quoted the coach Larry Brown as saying, he was Julius before Julius, 
He was Elgin before Elgin. He was Michael before Michael. He was simply the greatest individual player I have ever seen. Hawkins built his legend at Boys High School in Brooklyn, then went on to the University of Iowa. Before he ever played a college game, he was barred by the NCAA in the early 1960s for associating with a gambler named Jack Molinas. The NBA, too, banished him for most of the decade, and Hawkins was only allowed to play in the league in 1969 after winning a lawsuit in which the NBA agreed to pay him $1.3 million. That would be about $9 million today. Joining us now to discuss Connie Hawkins' life and career is Rick Tellender. He writes for the Chicago Sun-Times, and he's the author of the classic book, Heaven is a Playground. Rick, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Your book, uh, Rick, was about street basketball in Brooklyn. Um, Amazing book. Everyone should read it if they haven't. And Connie Hawkins was just a towering figure in that scene. Can you just describe what Connie Hawkins meant um, to you know, street basketball in Brooklyn? Uh, it's hard to really, uh, well, you can't overemphasize it, I don't think. It, it's just uh, a legendary uh, American sort of iconic hero in the way that, it, uh, say, Mike Fink, King of the River, or, you know, Davy Crockett, uh, these people that you heard more about, it was sort of uh, passed down from one generation to the other. There, It was like lore. It was like um, spoken stories. If you sit around a campfire, people would tell a story of Connie Hawkins because there was very little actual documentation of what was going on there. Very, you know, no cameras, hardly any uh, video taken at all. I don't know if there's any video of Connie Hawkins playing street ball, you know, and there were no tape recorders, nothing like that. So it was word of mouth. And uh, Connie was this guy that kind of his image and his legend hung over all of the street basketball games. Everybody knew who the Hawk was. Everybody. Even if they hadn't seen him play. That kind of image of Connie Hawkins doing these things, you know, whirly bird dunks, things that hadn't been seen in something that was relatively new to American history, and that is, you know, total, utter culture of street ball. Yeah, this is Whatever the Whatever that means, playground ball, largely starting and flourishing in New York City. This is the early 60s, so it's before our conception and before you got there in the mid-70s. And you wrote a piece in Sports Illustrated uh, in 2012 uh, about revisiting that scene, and you actually quoted from another book, Pete Axthelm's The City Game, and you quote uh, in which Axthelm quoted a college player saying, the hawk went up, he was still way out beyond the foul line and started floating toward the basket. Will Chamberlain, taller and stronger, stayed right with him, but then the hawk hook-dunked the ball right over Chamberlain. He hook-dunked. And I think my favorite part of that quote is the is the end of it. He hook-dunked. It's just this, um, this amazement about what a basketball player could do. Yes, uh, those are the kind of legendary things that people love to tell. And the kids, the young generation, at least they did, they love to hear them. Because, you know, these are great American heroes in a way. And uh, if, if their story was not documented, not seen by millions on TV or on YouTube or anywhere, it had to be the oral history that, was, uh, that became so significant. The street reputation cannot be overemphasized in an era before technology changed everything, before cell phones, 
before cameras, there were disposable cameras, but nobody had a camera. Before people were using tape recorders very much, you had to see the person himself, and then the story had to be told by the people who saw that person himself. That was the only way that the information passed along. And this has been the tradition, you know, throughout history. That's how uh, legends occurred. You know, that's how the Bible was written. You know, it's hard to describe because in this era, you can go on Facebook, you can do anything. You see everybody, everything about everybody before you ever meet them. Not so with Connie Hawkins. So the question about him, especially around the obituaries and thinking back on what he was able to accomplish and what he was kept from accomplishing during his life, is is Connie Hawkins a tragic figure? You know, he got caught up with this gambler, Jack Molinas, and was banned from ever playing college basketball and blackballed from the NBA. And, like, but he really wasn't caught up with him. And that was the tragedy of what transpired. He was questioned by the DA in New York and ended up just sort of agreeing to whatever they wanted him to say because he needed to get out of there. They had grilled him for days and days. He was never really accused of, of, of he was never, never proven to have been connected with anybody. The tragedy of Connie Hawkins, if you read his story, the fact that he made it out at all. Uh, the Eddie Simmons, I mean, it's incredible. The Eddie Simmons Memorial uh, Tournament that we were going to in Brooklyn was for a friend uh, to raise money for different charities or whatever. And he gets used by these people, these gamblers. He had nothing to do with gambling. I mean, he had no parental guidance whatsoever. His uh dwelling. I think he lived in an apartment basement. You know, it was just, it was terrible from absolute poverty. And you get these guys like Jack Molinas and these other gamblers back when New York was just this hotbed of point shaving and Madison Square Garden was just filled with gamblers and all kinds of uh, scandals going on in college basketball. The original ones back in the 50s started, I think it was all New York schools. That kind of got sucked into this thing back when he had to go to college to play in the NBA. All he should have been able to do is have some good advisor, somebody to help a poor kid and help him play basketball, which he was just fantastic at. So this whole story could have happened to LeBron James. It could, it could have happened to anybody. It just so happened this is way back when there was no protection whatsoever for uh, a young basketball phenom like Connie Hawkins. Yeah, David Wolf in the Life magazine article that turned into the book, Foul, that you mentioned, Rick, he described Connie Hawkins as a terrified, semi-literate teenager who thought he'd go to jail unless he said what the DA's detectives pressed him to say. I mean, I guess one way to look at it is that it was miraculous in some sense that he got that money from... That he won. That he won in the end, that he got that $1.3 million and that he was granted entry into the NBA after being denied it for so long. I mean, the, the Connie Hawkins that we saw... And the NBA, Rick, you know, how diminished was he by that point from what he'd been at his peak? Well, obviously, age changes everything. And Connie Hawkins would have been one of those guys that had we been able to watch him the way we watched so many other, have watched so many great players. Think about Kobe Bryant. He was in the league at 18. If if, uh, Hawkins had only been able to play in the NBA at, say, age 20, Instead of all the other things that happened, uh, you know, the bizarre stuff in Iowa, the, you know, this, uh, this scandal, all this, uh, the ABA, which almost nobody watched, 
so nobody knew. You, you, you almost you played uh, in private virtually, except for the people who showed up. So I think he was tremendously diminished. If you uh, started anybody's career, I don't. I don't know how old he was. He was in his late twenties, right before he um, actually was able to play in the NBA. And of course, nutrition wasn't anything that anybody worried about. There was no, you know, weightlifting, none of that stuff. I would just love to see a uh, dynamic figure like Connie Hawkins come along right now. I wish he were, I wish you were 17 right now. Rick Tallender writes for the Chicago Sun-Times. He is the author of the book, Kevin is a Playground. Rick, thank you so much for coming on and helping us remember Connie Hawkins. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls. And this week it's really special. Josh alluded at the top of the show that we would have goodies in the After Balls segment. Everybody loves goodies. Goodies, children. And you know what those goodies are? Those goodies are us picking two afterballs that we already did earlier in the year and replaying them for you. Leftover goodies. The best kind of goodies. Leftover goodies. (laughs) Delicious. These are been hand picked, hand dipped in caramel, and placed on a stick for easy consumption. Wrapped and put under your tree. This is the. These are the best of 2017. Or your bush. No complaints. I will hear no complaints. No. Uh, But we should give the segment a name. And we just came off of uh, Connie Hawkins. Yep. Tribute to Connie Hawkins. And I thought we would uh, pay tribute and tease our bonus segment, which in which we will talk about more sports figures from 2017 who died. Um, I thought we should name them after Felo Ramirez. Who is Felo Ramirez? He's a Spanish language broadcaster for 72 years did baseball games. Uh, The last 25 or so for the Miami Marlins, started in Cuba in the 1940s, called basically every game. um, I didn't (laughs) know that there was a Cuban Cuban immigrant broadcaster, that's cool. Yeah, it was cool. Um, He was honored by the Hall of Fame in 2001, got the Ford C. Frick Award for broadcasting excellence, and he was apparently a real figure. We don't live in Miami, so or listen to Miami Miami Marlins uh, Spanish language broadcast, but Ramirez kept broadcasting into his 90s um, and only stopped after he fell getting off the team bus earlier this year, which uh, precipitated his death. Apparently, he had a signature home run call, which was very similar to a soccer call in Spanish. You know, the goal, drawn out call. He would warn his listeners, and this is according to Richard Sandomir's obituary in the New York Times, if you have cardiac problems, back away from your radio now. All right. We're going to play a clip of this home run call. So if you have cardiac problems, please back away from your phone or car stereo or whatever it is. Here's fellow Ramirez.
fellow Ramirez was 94. He died in August. Stefan, what is your fellow Ramirez? Well, before we replay my choice for After Ball of the Year, I want to mention that last week's very successful After Ball, clearly it was very successful, and we'll see why, about the slash line ratio created by our guest last week, David Roth. We had not one, but two listeners write in to say they are working on or ready to work on. I think one has already worked on, one was ready to work on creating an app, a widget, something that will automatically correlate slash line ratio, replies, retweets, likes with your triple crown slash line ratio stats to give you a comparable on terrible tweets. This is a huge development. That counts as a goodie. That's a goodie. Yeah, more Christmas goodies. Hang up and listen, making a difference out in the world. So back to the subject at hand, what did you pick as your favorite Stefan Fatsis Afterball of the Year? Stefan Fatsis Afterballs, one of your favorite genres in all of media. It's one of my favorite things to do every week, and I want everyone to know that. We, we pour our hearts and souls into the afterballs, don't we, Josh? Some weeks. Some weeks. Yeah, some weeks we mail it in. I chose Josh for my afterball of the year and afterball from May. The show included you, me, and Jane Coaston. And you'll hear Jane's voice in the course of the afterball. And it was the afterball about the backing vocals on Marvin Gaye's What's Going On as sung by two members of the Detroit Lions in the late 1960s. Let's hear it. Well, someone noted on Twitter on Sunday that on this date in 1971, Marvin Gaye's album, What's Going On, was released. Charlie Pierce of Esquire replied, Mel Farr and Lem Barney on backing vocals. And I thought, what? Lem Barney and Mel Farr of the Detroit Lions? This, it turns out, is not a secret fact. It is, however, one that I didn't know. So here's the story. Marvin Gaye recorded for Motown Records and lived in Detroit. Lem Barney arrived in 1967 as a rookie with the Lions. He was a fan of Gaye's, wanted to meet him. As Barney told the alt-weekly Detroit Metro Times last year, one day during training camp in 1970, he went over to a golf course where he had heard that Motown people played. Barney asked if Gaye was playing, and a guy in the clubhouse said, no, but here's his address. Barney drove over in his 1967 Thunderbird, rang the doorbell. I stand back a minute, and as I'm about to ring it again, the door opens up, and it's Marvin. He says, hey, man, what's happening? And I said, my name is Len Barney. He said, not the guy with the Detroit Lions. And I said, yeah. And he said, man, you're too small to be playing football. Then he says, come on in. It's like we were there in the room. Gay loved football. He'd start going to Lions practices. He became good friends with Barney, who was a defensive back, and with his teammate Mel Farr, a running back. Sometimes they would hang out at Motown's recording studios. About this time, Obie Benson of the Four Tops was writing a song that would become What's Going On. Benson's fellow Tops didn't want to record a Vietnam protest song. Joan Baez passed on it, too, and Benson brought it to Gay, who wanted a group that he was managing to sing it. Benson demanded instead that Gay do it. He tinkered with the lyrics, channeling feelings inspired by his brother who had been in Vietnam, and he insisted that his friends Barney and Farr perform background vocals. Lem Barney could sing, Mel Farr couldn't. They were joined by Motown artists Bobby Rogers and LG and Kenny Stover, but it's Lem Barney who's trilling opens What's Going On.
convinced that if you told me something happened from between 1967 to 1987, I would believe whatever it was. The party scene that you're listening to is, of course, a backdrop throughout the song. It's a homecoming party for a returning veteran who's mystified by what's going on in the country. Anti-war protests, race riots, social upheaval. The background vocals are tight. The contrast of the party to the mournful lyrics is genius. But what are the Detroit Lions and their friends actually saying? Fortunately, someone on YouTube has isolated the backing tracks from what's going on. So here's Lem Barney with the opening trilling again and the subsequent conversation. Hey, hey, hey. hey what's up, man? Brother, what's up? Uh, this is a hey, big party, man. Yeah, I brother, can like, dig it. Stop it. Right on. <laughs> hey, hey, man, what's your name? Sweet Gates. <laughs> hey, what's up, man? <laughs> All right, so pretty basic 1970s cocktail party chatter, but let's keep listening. Go out to Let's do it all, baby. Yeah, yeah. Super Bowl 14 and 0, baby. What do you say? That is definitely not Lambarney. It could be Mel Farr. In any case, the party returns at the end of the song, and so does the football talk. Let's go all the way this year, baby. 14 and 0. Come on, Freckles, let's split. Get the football now, baby. Football. Come on. Hey, Mark. Look here, man. Look here. That is Lem Barney saying, get the football now. But notice that they repeat the 14-0 Super Bowl business. That is a monumental gloat right there. The Lions went 7-6-1 in 1971. 46 years later, the only season with a zero in the team's record was 2008 when they lost every game. And, of course, the Detroit Lions have never played in the Super Bowl. It is the curse of what's going on. If you play it backwards, though, they invent the all-pass interference offense. It's true. There is a postscript to the story, which is that Marvin Gaye wanted to try out for the Lions, and Lem Barney and Mel Farr persuaded the coach, Joe Schmidt, to let him. The players worked out with Gaye. He bulked up. He had his tryout Wait, in shorts you? and shoes. This should be a different afterball. It should be a different afterball, but I'm just going to throw it in here. No pads. Uh, Justin Tinsley of The Undefeated recounted that and the story of what's going on in 2015, and we will post the piece on the show page. Great afterball. Love that afterball. So you recorded that in May, and the kicker of it was that there's this curse on the Lions, um, you know, never winning the Super Bowl, never uh, making it to the Super Bowl, right? So the Lions, as we're recording this segment today, they're eight and six. We're doing this a little bit in advance. They're playing on on Sunday, twelve twenty four. So they could still make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. They could break the curse this year. They could make the Super Bowl. They probably won't. <laughs> By the time people listen to this, they could be eliminated from the playoffs too. That's yeah, a possibility. To keep it going, it's all up in the air for the Lions. What's going on? We'll find out. Josh, what's your fellow Ramirez? Thank you, Stefan. The one that I chose, a lot of, lot of contenders, obviously. 51 honestly, contenders. Honestly, the best one was the Scorpion versus the Spider, but that was like last Too week. recent, yeah. <laughs> so just go back and listen to that one from December sometime. Yeah. Classic afterball. Um, but the one that I picked is from back in June, June 26th. That was an episode where uh, Joel Anderson, then of BuzzFeed, now of ESPN, was with us. So you'll hear Joel kind of tortured Joel a little bit during this afterball by forcing him to listen to Barry Sanders' attempt uh, to perform abstinence-related hip-hop. This was the afterball about the AC Green abstinence anthem, It Ain't Worth It, 
Let's take a listen. Last year, ESPN ran a 30 for 30 short called Iron Virgin about the longtime L.A. Lakers power forward A.C. Green, who played 1,278 out of 1,281 games in 16 NBA seasons, all while abstaining from sexual activity. The eight-and-a-half-minute documentary short, which is narrated by Will Ferrell, features Lakers superfan Lou Gossett Jr. discussing losing his virginity at age 14 under the boardwalk in Coney Island. His review, it was terrible. Uh, The doc also includes a very brief clip of a music video that the very Christian abstinence town in Green recorded in the 1990s. It is called It Ain't Worth It, and it features a group that called itself Athletes for Abstinence. Among them were Washington cornerback Daryl Green, no relation, the Detroit Lions' Barry Sanders, the Green Bay Packers' Reggie White, and the San Antonio Spurs' David Robinson. So you can still order this video along with, I think, some bonus material, some bonus don't-have-sex material from the AC Green Foundation website. Um, You have to keep in mind when this was created. This was a little bit more than two years after uh, Green's longtime teammate Magic Johnson made his announcement that he was HIV positive. And so a lot of the messaging in the tape is that literally that if you have sex, then you could die. Um, But also, you know, teen pregnancy is bad and other STDs. Um, In a 1994 interview with Jet Magazine, Green said that the video's lesson of sexual restraint is an age-old message with renewed vigor. And then Mm. he also added um, with regard to how he, um, you know, kept his strength uh, despite temptation. I compare it to a steak and a hamburger. I expect the best for me. So as tempting as that hamburger may look to me at the time, I know there's something better for me if I wait, that being steak, presumably, although he didn't say. (laughs) So that's all preamble because I am now going to treat you to some clips from this music video. Uh, Let us begin near the beginning. Let's roll that clip. You know, that guy would be pretty good if he didn't think he was God's gift to women. You know, guys like that never win because they're always thinking with the wrong part of their body. Game. Next. All right, so the guy saying that people like that never win because they think with the wrong part of their body is Barry Sanders, who never won a Super Bowl. Keep that in mind. <laughs> and then the guy who he's saying never wins because he thinks with the wrong part of their body, if you, you know, hear in the background, it says game because he just won the game. That's like, that's what we call a self-owned Barry Sanders. All right, moving on to the next uh, sequence from the It Ain't Worth It music video. So little time. Girl, I know what you mean. Oh, look at the muscles on them. <gasps> Gorgeous. Oh, I want that one right there. And I'm going to get him. Mm-hmm. Come on, girl. Let's go. Mm. I was expecting the other woman to say, let me say see green. You're not getting him. <laughs> that would have been, been much better, much funnier. So this video, you might be thinking this is an extremely retrograde idea. It's actually even more retrograde than you thought it was. The, the depiction in the video is essentially that men are being besieged by women who just want to have sex with them just constantly in the middle of basketball games. And so <laughs> are they, they standing just, on a court? They're, they're on a court playing like 
you know, three on three, as one does. Uh, maybe maybe four big on three. four or big five three. on five. Big three. Big, very big, big, big three. three. Um, and there are yeah. just women. <laughs> there are women under the basket saying this stuff. And the men, the, the less AC Greenish men, are being distracted by their banter in the very, like, classic cartoony way where Owen's like, oh, look at that guy. And then he gets, like, hit in the head with the basketball. So the abstinence-minded will not commit as many turnovers on the court because they're just not paying attention to the women. All right, moving on. Let's listen, like, to what happens when the music starts and evaluate, does AC Green have bars? Here are my favorite parts in order. The government's latex. So it's like condoms are a government plot, essentially, according to AC Green. He also... And and sort of given the limited, uh, you know, palette that he's working with, I guess he had no choice. He rhymes sex with abstinence, which is, <laughs> <laughs> you know, off rhyme, I guess. Are the lyrics published somewhere or did you have to listen to it multiple times and write them down? I just used my ears. I couldn't find the lyrics written down anywhere. I just used my ability to understand what AC Green is saying when he's talking about safe sex. All right. The last clip we have is uh, Barry Sanders. I think this might be the only um, attempt at hip hop in Barry Sanders' career. So let's see how he did. Oh, man. <laughs> it, I want to win it. Then it, I want to crush it. But this safe sex talk, you can't trust it. Me and mine, him and his, yo, I educated. Building your info needs. Hearing Barry Sanders say Jimmy Hat just makes me never want to have sex again. The video, the video totally worked. It worked. It can work for you, too, if you go to acgreen.com. It only costs $25 or free on YouTube. So clearly, Josh, if you want to be after ball of the year, you need to be an athlete singing. Definitely. Yeah. The musical ones have always been big hits. I mean, like the classic Pesca, Oklahoma one is probably the sure, best sure. after ball of I did all time. The, I did the Cleveland Browns music once. That was fun. I did the... Uh, the fat tub of goo, Terry Forster wanted a live show once. And, I, and didn't I do some Chicago Cubs songs too? Classic musical afterballs. We should, we should we should do an album. We should. That would that would be a big hit for somebody. Um, that is our show for today. It's our last show for 2017. Thank you guys so much for listening uh, to the podcast all year. Thank you to our producer Patrick Fort uh, for being with us this whole time. Bravo, Patrick. Um, to listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. I'd also like to tout the podcast Mom and Dad Are Fighting, in which Gabriel Roth, Rebecca Lavoie, and Carvel Wallace 
discuss all aspects of parenting from toddlers to teens. They answer listener questions, share their own parenting triumphs and fails, and talk through parenting issues in the news. It's weekly. It posts every Thursday morning, and you can catch it at slate.com slash mom and dad. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.